0: As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Aura Okunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: When America's Supreme Court struck down universities' affirmative action policies last month, many worried about plummeting student diversity. But the ruling may eventually spur more progressive and more effective ways to level the playing field.
2: Love of a certain sticky white sweet has much to do with nostalgia as a loyalty to homegrown products. We chew over the story with our correspondent.
1: First up, though. This week, the exiled leader of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, spoke out about his failed attempt to march on Moscow. In a message on Telegram, he said he was attempting to mobilize Russian society and that his fighters would be back on the battlefield in Ukraine soon enough. Questions over the future of Mr. Prigozhin and the Wagner Group remain pressing, not least in Africa, where it has a heavy presence that's still keenly felt. On Friday, the UN's Security Council dissolved its mission to stabilize fighting in Mali, with American representatives warning over Wagner's role in the country. The UN has a responsibility to minimize the risk that its assets fall into the hands of those looking to destabilize Mali or bring harm to its people including violent extremist organizations and the Wagner Group. A White House spokesman even accused Mr. Prigozhin of helping to engineer the UN's departure in order to further Wagner's interests. Those interests in Africa were always murky, but they hinged on Russia being perceived as a stable, reliable partner, something Wagner's leader has thrown into question.
3: The exile of Evgeny Prigozhin to Belarus has raised huge questions about the future of the Wagner Group.
1: John McDermott is The Economist's Chief Africa Correspondent.
3: But what happens to the paramilitary firm does not just matter for Ukraine or for Russia, but to its vast network of interests in Africa as well.
1: So we've talked a little bit about Wagner in Africa before. Lay it out for me. How, how does Wagner operate on the continent?
3: The Wagner Group is both a private paramilitary firm, but also a tool of Russian foreign policy. So when it enters an African country at the behest of an African politician or a group of politicians, it does so to meet their needs, but it's also fulfilling the Kremlin's agenda. Over the past six years, it's sent troops to five African states, most notably Libya, Mali, and the Central African Republic. But it's had a presence one way or another in about a dozen in total. We don't know for sure how many Wagner fighters there are, but analysts reckon the best estimate is about 5,000. And a bit like the colonial enterprises of the 19th century, what the Wagner group allows Russia is to have influence in Africa without necessarily accountability.
1: And what about how it actually operates on the ground, uh, fulfilling the, the Kremlin's agenda, the agenda of the African politicians that bring them in?
3: It operates in different ways, in different places, depending on what the client wants and often depending what the Kremlin wants. But you can think of it as being a business. It sells its services to African governments. And you can think of the business as having three main units, military, economic and political. The military one is often the clearest because it is at root a paramilitary mercenary firm. Take the Central African Republic, for instance, a landlocked country, as the name suggests, in the centre of the continent. The Wagner Group has roughly about 1,500 fighters there to help prop up the Tuadera regime, which has a whole bunch of internal foes because of intercommunal violence that have stretched back in the former French colony for decades. And it has helped ensure the survival of that regime but it's also been accused of vast human rights abuses, organizing massacres, training local troops in torture, carrying out gang rape, all as part of a campaign of terror, as a recent report called it, against the local population on behalf of its own interests, but also those of the ruling government.
1: So you said there's there's sort of three legs to this, that uh, brutal military side. What about the economic and the
3: political Wagner does a lot more than just offer protection for African autocrats or African hunters. It also has a, a vast political dimension. So there are individual firms within the Wagner group that promote disinformation, propaganda, organize sham election observation groups. But they're all to do with propping up the African clients that want its services. And then there is the pay there's the payday for the Wagner Group. It's the the quid for the violent quo, if you like. And remember, there's not just a single Wagner Group. It's more of a brand name for a network that has a lot of subsidiaries that have various links to each other and various links back to Russia as well. And they're essentially involved in extractive industries across the continent. Over the past few years, investigations and reports by bodies such as the UN, the United States, and the European Union have shown that the Wagner empire throughout Africa is involved in the illicit gold trade through Sudan. It's involved in diamond mining and gold mining in the Central African Republic. It's moved into other areas there, such as vodka and logging. And the key thing here is that while we don't know how much money Mr. Prigozhin and Wagner has made out of Africa, it's clearly enough for it to have been a very important part of the spat between him and Vladimir Putin.
1: So you say that that some of the, the ties are quite loose, it's non-hierarchical. How much does the the uprising in Russia, Mr. Prigozhin's exile in Belarus, matter to all that business that's going on in Africa, do you think?
3: That's the question that everyone's asking. And the way I've tried to think about it is to see where the interests currently lie. So there will remain an interest among the individuals and entities that make up the Wagner Group to keep the show on the road, to keep the plundering, to keep the looting going. And whether they are still led nominally by Mr. Prigozhin or not, the network of interests will still want to keep that going. Speaking to Wagner experts over the past few days, they've reminded me that it's much more, the group is much more than just one individual, and it has its own dynamic that will likely seek to continue in the months and years ahead. Another key factor in all this is the Kremlin. Over the past decade, pretty much since Russia's annexation of Crimea, Russia has wanted to redouble its foreign policy efforts on the continent as it tries to kind of curry favor with with countries for its kind of brutal actions abroad. And Africa's been a key part of that, and Varga's been a key part of the Africa strategy. It's not clear to me then why the Kremlin would want to give up this quite useful parallel instrument of foreign policy that it's built up over the past six years.
1: But what about the view from the other direction here? What about uh, African leaders, politicians, clients' views of what's been going on in Russia? Does, does that change the, the calculus here?
3: That's where it gets really interesting because the African countries, the African politicians are often left out of this conversation. But remember, they're the customer for the Wagner Group, as brutal as this marketplace may be. Over the past six years, Russia has appealed to a select number of fragile African countries, because it projects strength and competence in security matters. So if they're now looking at a regime that can't even ensure security at home, they might rethink whether it's good to be getting into business with Russia. Burkina Faso, for instance, has long been rooted as the next staging post for the Wagner Group. But if you're the regime there, are you really going to invite in a group that just staged a mutiny in its country of origin. So I think it's important as we speculate as to the future of the Wagner Group, that we don't lose sight that there's two sides to this transaction. There's the Russian side, and then there's the African side. And African governments will make their own decisions about where they see the Wagner Group and Russia more broadly in their future.
1: Thanks very much for your time, John.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: For more than 50 years, some of America's swankiest universities tweaked their admission policies to give a leg up to Black, Hispanic, and Native American students. That came to an end on June 29th, when the Supreme Court declared these affirmative action practices unconstitutional. The 14th Amendment stipulates equal protection under the law, and that leg up was unequal. On the surface, that looks like a step back for efforts at diversity, at making student demographics reflect national ones. But look a little closer, and those policies weren't perfect at tilting the playing field toward level. And striking them down may, in the long run, make for even more progressive policies in their place.
4: Since their birth in the 1960s, race-conscious admissions policies have survived a number of challenges.
1: Tamara Jilgspor is our U.S. policy correspondent.
4: This recent judgment by the conservative court could cause a swift drop in the number of students from these minority groups, Black, Hispanic and Native American, who go to America's best colleges. But the decision led by the conservative justices could actually spur changes that make university admissions more progressive.
1: And Tamara, before we discuss the implications of the ruling, let's wind back a bit about who brought this about, how we got to this place.
4: Yeah, so the decision has come from a pair of cases first brought in 2014 by a legal advocacy group called Students for Fair Admissions. It was founded by Edward Bloom, and he's a longtime opponent of racial preferences. And the case was against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So by a vote of six to three, the Supreme Court agreed that systematic considerations of race It admissions decisions violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. What is really interesting is that the decision does not apply to military academies. The court decided that when it comes to military training, racial diversity is a matter of national security. Another interesting point is that the ruling does not eliminate every last consideration of race. So if a student mentions race in an essay or an interview and they explain how their racial identity affects their lives, admissions committees can actually consider that.
1: And so what impact do you think this ruling is going to have?
4: One way to look at the impact is to look at the nine states that currently ban affirmative action in public colleges. So these bans started in the late 1990s. And in general, they haven't actually had a huge impact on the total number of students who go to college. But it has changed where they study. One study of six states found that they actually enrolled about 20% fewer Black and Hispanic students in the years immediately after the bans than they would have otherwise. Interestingly, students of color who were turned away by the best universities often wound up at second-tier institutions, and then they displaced some applicants from those institutions who then ended up at third-tier campuses and so on.
1: And so how do you think universities will respond now that affirmative action is officially out?
4: The ruling impacts a policy policy, but not the underlying principle of valuing diversity. So I think we're going to see colleges and universities get very creative in how they recruit and admit students. First of all, many students of color don't even apply to the elite universities. They think that they might not be able to get in, or they think that they can't afford the university. Universities are going to have to really work to get these students to apply in the first place. Another option is to ramp up wealth or income-based affirmative action which does remain legal under the latest decision. And this would allow students of color, black, Hispanic, Native American students, as well as white and Asian American students to be favored in a system if they are poor. And that would provide opportunity to students regardless of their race.
1: And you are convinced that the university administrators want this diversity that is that is no longer sort of being imposed.
4: I do. In my conversations with university presidents, they made it really clear that diversity matters to them, both because they think that diversity fosters a better learning environment, but also because they believe that the most elite students want their colleges to be diverse. So if they failed to deliver diverse campuses, then they could actually fail to get the best students.
1: So you say that universities will have to work hard to keep the diversity up. What kind of policies are we talking about here?
4: So, this is not going to be easy. Even with race conscious admissions policies, universities really struggled to create diverse campuses. But there are a couple of strategies that they can try. One thing that has been done is top percent schemes. Basically, universities offer spots to any student who graduates in the top 10% or whatever percent of their high school class. They get automatic entrance to university. And the idea is that it can give really smart kids who excel in any school, whether it's the worst school in the state or the best school in the state, they all get a chance to go to the best colleges in the state. Another option, which is probably the most controversial, but arguably would be the most fair, would be to ditch favoritism for children of alumni and for other special considerations. Legacy applicants, or the children of alumni, make up around 16% of Harvard's class of 25. And over 43% of white students at Harvard were athletes, legacies, children of faculty or staff, or had some other special status. Another perceived barrier to creating diverse classes is standardized testing. Columbia University recently announced that they will no longer require the SATs or the ACTs, and they seem to think that this will help them craft more diverse classes.
1: And how effective in total do you think all of these policies might be if they were all put into practice?
4: Achieving this on a national scale is going to require a huge push. Furthermore, if you use income-based affirmative action and you don't consider whether or not a student can pay... A university is going to have to now run with fewer tuition funds. So it's not as easy as just admitting everyone who deserves to get in. Universities have to collect tuition so they can't admit a class of entirely poor students. In reality, race-conscious affirmative action did not create the diverse campuses that colleges and many students wanted to see in the first place. But in comparison to race-neutral alternatives, they did a much better job. So now, with race-conscious affirmative action off the table, colleges are going to have to work really hard to get the diverse campuses that they say they want.
1: Tamara, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. This week on our U.S. Politics podcast, Checks and Balance, my colleagues are going on a deeper dive into the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. They pick apart the case law, they consider whether it was the right call, and they trace the history of affirmative action in America. That'll be out on Friday. Look for Checks and Balance wherever podcasts are admitted without prejudice.
5: So I first came across white rabbits on my first trip to China in 1994, and they were really the only sweet in town.
2: Rosie Bloor writes about China for The Economist.
5: They're these milky, very, very chewy candies. And they're wrapped in a very distinctive, sticky, edible rice paper cover. And then again, in wax paper. They have a rabbit on them. They're red, white, and blue. And they're just one of those things that pops out as soon as you see them. They're an iconic brand in China. And where did White Rabbit come from? So they were actually a copy of British toffees. And they were first produced in 1943. And they had Mickey Mouse on the wrapper. So there was a sense of this is a cool international thing. So they predated the communist era, which is interesting. They turned 80 this year. But then in the 1950s, that kind of Americana was just completely out. You can't have Mickey Mouse on communist wrappers. And so Mickey Mouse was replaced by a big white rabbit, which gave the brand its name. And because they were really the only sweets around, they became this very popular thing. And Zhou Enlai gave them to Richard Nixon when he first visited in China in the 1970s. He gave them to visiting Soviet dignitaries. And they were incredibly successful. But then obviously, as the economy started to open up in the 1980s, there were other foreign brands coming in and other Chinese brands. And so the brand fell by the wayside a little bit. And how about today? What's changed? So one thing that happened is that White Rabbit started exporting the sweets and they did particularly well in sort of countries with a big Chinese diaspora. These were things that people remembered from their childhood. But also there's just been a general resurgence of traditional Chinese brands and they've done particularly well this year. Because they have a rabbit on them, and it is the year of the Zodiac rabbit. And so in the first quarter, their you know sales were apparently up 10% year on year. And they've just opened a flagship store in Shanghai, which has got a lot of attention on social media. <laughs> So you can hear there, there there's a video from an influencer who's walking through the store showing his fans about the candy and about perfumes and clothing and all sorts of accessories that they've got with White Rabbit on them.
2: So apart from this one influencer, what's behind this big resurgence?
5: So I think that White Rabbit has tried to make its brand sort of more of a lifestyle, as a lot of brands do. And so they've done a lot of partnerships. There was a White Rabbit lip balm sold out within hours in 2018 when the first batches were produced. There have been various forms of White Rabbit ice cream, including a team up with Godiva, the chocolate company to make White Rabbit ice cream. There was a pop-up milk tea store in Shanghai selling White Rabbit milk tea. Recently, there have been these high fashion collaborations with Coach where they've had this fancy handbag, you're paying $1,000 and then it's got Dear Old Little White Rabbit on the side. There's been a Japanese skincare brand launched White Rabbit Face Serum which had these bottles that also warn consumers do not eat. There's been all sorts of different types of collaborations. And why are all these brands collaborating with White Rabbit? So I think there's a sense in which China has come full circle back to buying Chinese-made brands. So it used to be that buying foreign brands was seen as a sign of quality and a cool thing to do in the global world. And now there's this Guochao, this national wave of buying nostalgic, patriotic goods. And so White Rabbit is a perfect brand for this trend because it's incredibly recognizable. It's got a proper history doing what it does, i.e. selling sweets. And so a lot of foreign brands have seen this as a way to help market to a Chinese audience by partnering with it and make it appealing to the next generation so young people have found quite interesting ways to interact with white rabbit online from making giant versions of the candy or creating their own dance videos wearing a white rabbit costume But then, also more generally, like a lot of Chinese consumers are just genuinely nostalgic for something that they ate as kids and that their parents ate. So, a lot of people just enjoy it because it brings back really fond memories.
2: Rosie, thank you so much for coming on the show.
5: Thank you, Aura.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at
2: And if you're not a subscriber of The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
3: Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse.